Hi, everyone. It's Mark Penziner. It is uh, noon. We're going to start our webinar on top trending market questions in just a minute or two. I know sometimes it takes people a minute or two to get the Zoom loaded. So we're going to stay right as close to schedule as reasonable, and um, we'll start this in, in just a minute or two. Okay, everyone. Thanks for joining the last of our Zoom webinars for the summer. Um, the, the topic today is the top trending market questions. And, and before we go into really five or six of the, the most frequent questions that I've gotten from, from you via email or in our phone conversations, <coughs> I think it's important just to give a, a very brief update on where Bernstein stands from a return to work perspective. Um, I, I think it's helpful that you know where, where we are and, and what our plan is. Um, so, so right now we're still essentially all remote. There are a few people in our New York office um, handling mail and, and basic essential tasks. The plan is that after Labor Day, we'll get to uh, a 10% staff force in New York on a voluntary basis and then very, very slowly increase that over time. Um, I, I think it's you know optimistic to think we're all going to be together anytime soon. But, but all that said, I think you've known that over the last few months, to the extent that we have been in the New York office entirely remote, um, and, and at points, the entire global firm working remotely from home, in our opinion, and, and I hope you feel this way too, is that it's been seamless. It hasn't impacted our ability to do research, to trade, um, and, and service you. Um, that said, I, I have talked to people in the New York commercial real estate space about what their building's occupancies look like and, and what they think it's going to be going forward. And, and this may just be interesting, broad information for you about but for those of you who are in New York, what, what it may look like, and for those of you outside, what, what we're hearing in New York. So currently, when I talk to people in that space, they're telling me that, you know, their occupancy, in other words, you know, the, the amount of people who are typically in that building Monday to Friday versus the amount of people that are swiping or checking into that building today is, is running 7 to 10%. So if your building's holding 1,000 people, you've got, you know, under 100 people in it in a day. That's remarkably low. And, and then when I talk to people about how they think the building's occupancies are going to adjust as we get through this year, I'm hearing numbers like 25% maybe through the end of the year. They're, they're optimistic building and building operating companies that they could be at 50% occupancy by the end of this year. You know, that's going to depend on lots of things like therapeutics and vaccines and, and, and what the Tri-State area schools do. But I think if, if um, we at Bernstein or just you and your personal or, or, or lives are thinking that, you know, New York City is going to be on Labor Day, 50% of people back in their offices in Midtown or on Wall Street, and, you know, 75% or 100% by year end, that's probably optimistic. I, I hope those forecasts are right, but I think that's probably um, unrealistic for how slow the recovery is going to be in terms of um, office occupancy in New York City. I'm going to start this presentation, as I always have, before I get into the top questions of the day with the scorecard that I've shown in all of these webinars month to month. And, and it really hasn't changed much. For those of you who have been on this before, I'm not going to walk through every part. I'll, I'll just bring you to where we are in July and August. And, and then given the question marks around July and August, where, where I think and, and how you best play this market from here forward. So as you remember, we score everything negatives or positives, the best being two positives, the worst being two negatives on the health, economic, and policy front. And then we just total that up. And, and where we are today in the summer is the health data, in my view, is, an, is negative. Um, it's not nearly as negative as we feared. So I've got a negative and a question mark, meaning 
you know, where does the health story go from here? The, the case curve seems to be a little better th this week than it was just a week ago. But, but you'll see all the way on the right, I, I call the market impact data dependent. And, and even the health is a great example of this. You know, today, the market's up 250 points about some potential good news on vaccines. Every time that health data gets a, a positive, market spike to 250 points. And, and then when you get worries that Keynes counts are exploding and there's no offset good medical news, um, that looks like a negative, that question mark, and markets sell off. This is a very data-dependent market, whether it's health, economic, or policy. On the economic front, look, we, we know the economy is not good. The question marks are a debate as to how bad and how quick the recovery is. And any time the Fed or things like the supply chain index come out, um, and we get some indication as to what the path forward is going to be, those question marks look more positive or look more negative. Markets reflect that instantaneously. Markets are, grafting, are, are grasping at straws. On the policy front, I think this is really clear. Monetary policy, the U.S. Central Bank, and all across the globe is clearly a positive. They are all in for as long as they can be. The question is fiscal policy. Think of that as Congress. And, and as you can see, that is a hard um, path to go down to get any sort of congressional agreement in major fiscal policy, more stimulus, et cetera. Um, that's going to be connected to some of the charts I'll show you about the election going forward. And so this is a market with and an environment with lots of question marks on the page. And, and I'm going to talk to you going forward about if, if you're worried about those question marks and you're in the stage of life where this is about protecting your capital, I think there's one way to play this market. On the flip side, if you're in the asset accumulation phase and you're trying to amass outsized returns, those question marks can actually lead to really interesting opportunities. What you find is when you do this, you know, I think it's an insightful but, but pretty simple scorecard. It really reflects what's happened in the market. The left chart is just my recovery scorecard over time and the right is the S&P 500. And as you can see, these two charts look really similar. Um, the market's essentially back at its all-time highs from February. And not surprisingly, my recovery scorecard is back at the starting point of a zero scorecard. And so if some of those question marks go positive, you know, we get a vaccine tomorrow and you take that question mark and turn it into a positive, markets are going to go past their, their all-time highs from February. If the health data gets worse, if we can't get fiscal policy done and some of these turn negatives, we're going to start to retrench. Now, I don't know that we'll get to where we were in March, but there's downside potential from here. And so how those question marks play out is going to be critical to the paths in the market and, and how you should position. Um, let me step aside for one second, because in, in such a uh, confusing and, and data-driven world, I have gotten questions from clients about how are we using all the data, quantitative data, in, in our research and portfolios. And, and we've got a really interesting blog and website that has some videos. I, I, I pulled forward one of them that I'll share with you now that I think is really insightful. It's with a senior quantitative data analyst, J Jonathan Burko, talking to senior investment strategist Chris Marks. Chris runs some of our core portfolios portfolios. And Jonathan talks about how his team is using quantitative data to, to give us insight into portfolios and specific stocks. And recently, we've gotten lots of interesting questions uh, from our analysts. Some are very broad, and some are a little bit more narrow. On the broad side, we have analysts who are curious about the global activity. How is the activity levels of the world changing? We've also gotten questions that are very narrow. So for example, one analyst who is covering banks want to understand the exposure of its banks to colleges. 
And so the risk is, is that colleges may or may not reopen in the fall. So if a bank has lots of exposure to their deposit base in those towns that are college towns, that may be a huge risk for that, that particular security. And so what we did was use geospatial information about the locations of the banks, the locations of the colleges, the size of the college, and the size of the popu local population to determine which of those banks and colleges were the major risk factors. So our analysts were able to process all of that information that would have taken them weeks and weeks to do on their own very quickly. Right. I think back to some of the tasks I had as an analyst, and uh, it certainly seems like it makes it much more efficient to do things that would have taken us a long period of time. You can compress that and, and, and answer the same question, you know, either more quickly or, or with more data. It's, it's fascinating. So I know one of the projects that you worked on was regarding the auto industry. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the work we did there. Yes, and this was one that we used uh, interesting alternative data from around the globe to help us have better confidence in our views about some American auto parts retailers. What we noticed in China is that their car congestion uh, activity monitors were recovering quite quickly, but public transit was something that was lagging. And we, in the, looking at the U.S. data, we actually saw similar trends. And so what this tells us is that going forward over the next few years, there's probably going to be an increase in demand in, uh, for car parts and auto repairs because people are moving away from subways. They're basically swapping subways for cars. And so that gave us a lot more confidence in the, our view that that could be an area of uh, growth for uh, our positions. So Jonathan, does this work end up impacting actual portfolio decisions? Yes, absolutely. We want to make sure all of our analysis is useful in investment decisions. A recent example is that our analysts were interested in a German real estate investment company that had holdings in uh, German hotel chains. And so what we were able to identify is that the search interest for these hotel chains had already bottomed and was starting to recover. And so this was something that gave us confidence that that hotel chain would benefit over the next three to six months. Really fascinating stuff. I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, so that's a, a, a little bit of an insight as to how we're using really big data to answer very specific questions about stocks and companies and portfolios. But the broad macro question that is probably the most frequently asked of me is, why does the market continue to go up when the news is so bad? And, and I am not going to make the case at any point in this that the data is not that bad, that the economy is doing fine. You walk around New York City today and, and wherever you are in your local community, and, and we know what retail data looks like just from the way we behave and the stores we walk through. But there are catalysts for what has sparked the market rally. And, and we've talked about a number of these before, so I'm going to hit them quickly. The big deal here is that the government, broadly speaking, showed up with a bazooka and quickly to, to basically defend not only the stock market, but the bond market. In the course of 100 days, the US government spent $3 billion in fiscal stimulus. In the global financial crisis and housing crisis of 2008, it never got to that $3 billion number, and it took years to even get to the $2 billion number. So an unprecedented amount of money in an unprecedented uh, speed, a rate of which they did that, really stopped the market bottoming in March. And concurrent to that, the Fed Fund's target rate was classed from two to zero, effectively overnight, where for that to happen in the global financial crisis, it took months, quarters, and years. 
And so what the Fed did from everything buying high yield bonds to cutting interest rates to zero is basically try and backstop everything to say, we'll support the economy to the extent possible. And we'll continue to hit the printing press to try and get a bridge from where we are to the other side. Now on the bottom left, there's, there's data about different states and, and coronavirus case counts. I'm, I'm, I'm less focused there because I'm, I'm not a doctor and you can get this data from the, the places you want. But it is true that there is a real vaccine timeline, whether it's AstraZeneca, J&J, Moderna, Pfizer, you look through this chart, there are an enormous amount of pharma companies on a path to uh, a vaccine. And whenever you have optimism about that timeline getting um, shortened, it's easier for markets to see a bridge from where we are today to when we return to a, a normal environment, at least of economic activity. The other thing to remember is, you know, and this gets a, a bit drowned in the data, the, and we'll, we're gonna, I'm going to get more into this in a minute, but the S&P 500 has been dominated by a number of massive tech companies. The obvious one to think about is Amazon or an Apple that have done really well through, through this quarantine period. They have become such an outsized part of the index that I think it's making the stock market not really reflect economic reality across the country. If you were to look at the S&P 500, so those are 500 representative companies of America, and didn't take the big tech companies, which make up an, a, a, an, an abnormal size of that index, and, and just had each 500 of those companies at an equal weight, you would see the market hasn't really done that well. But when the biggest companies out there are doing the best, it, it plays with the math of the index and it can lead you to see a market, an S&P 500 that is doing better than not only the real economy, but the 500 most representative companies of the US economy. So, so we have to think about that in context. The other thing that's happened to spark the, the, the rebound in the economy is that if you think about where we were in December, we were forecasting earnings of $177 a share. That came down to 125 in, in response to the coronavirus. But as we think out to 2021, the initial estimate was 195, okay? The, the most bearish estimates at the peak of the crisis took that 195 down to 140. Now we're back up to 162. So that rebound in earnings or expected earnings for 2021 absolutely helps stock prices. And, and so where we are now is that change in forecast of estimates and PE ratios has you at, at $162 a share. If you put earnings per share at about 20 times, it's a market that in the screen should basically be flat over the next 12 months. If you think earnings are gonna be better, 169, 175, 182, you pick your PE ratio and it tells you what's implied in the, in the return for the market over the next 12 months. Now, if you go back to when the markets were down over 30%, it was thinking about earnings in the $130 to $150 range and PE ratios of 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And that has the S&P off 35, 40, 45%. When, when that was viewed to be too extreme, markets rebounded more to where you see the green on this chart, which is where we are today. Okay. By the way, all of this is gonna be available online and in a recording. So if there are some slides that I just jumped past, you can always go back and check them out later. Next big topic I always get is, well, what's the impact of the election? And it is easy to say um, elections don't matter. Politics don't matter. They don't drive the market. I'm, I'm not sure that's right this time. So, so let me first give you the context. And you have seen some of these charts in prior webinars. 
about what the impact of politics is on markets short and long term. But, but then I'll acknowledge, I do think there are some fundamental differences this time, especially when monetary and fiscal policy are so important to where we go from here. And that's clearly going to be impacted from the election. So, you know, part of these charts poo poo the notion of politics, but then I think we all have to be smart enough to recognize it's going to matter here. And, and how might that play out? So let me walk you through that. Traditionally, Democratic president versus Republican president, really no relationship between market performance, whether you have a Democrat or Republican in the White House. What is interesting is when you look at the difference between divided government, so Congress and the executive office, the president being split red and blue versus unified government, all chambers blue or all red, divided government tends to do better than unified government. And, and our view for that is that when you have divided government, you have less change. Less change is more certainty. Markets like certainty. Markets don't like uncertainty. When you have all blue or all red, um, easier for things to change, uncertain how that'll change. And, and markets tend to not like that type of change, hard to price it. And so our view is that divided government it often does better than unified government in terms of market performance going forward. So how do we think about the potential market impact in a 2020 election? Well, as I said, we know the balance of power between the White House, Senate, and the House is going to affect the economy and the markets. We, we know what the current polls are telling us. It's important we don't let our personal views impact how we think about markets in this. And so what don't we know? You never know how the election will play out and how they match the polls. You don't know how actual policy will get legislated versus what uh, a platform is today. Okay. And, and then you also don't know how much different election results or policies are already being factored into the market or when they will be. What is interesting today is that the market clearly expects an unusual amount of high volatility in November. So this is all based on options pricing. And I don't need to get into exactly how it's put together, but the market is thinking about implied daily price change. So it says one, two, three, four, five. Just, just think about this in terms of magnitude implied November 2020 move is significantly higher on this chart by leaps and bounds than what typically happened in November of 2012 or November of 2016. Or if you just think about this being a volatile year over the last 30 days. So as you look into future options pricing, the market is saying, hey, November is going to be exceptionally volatile. Now, why would that be? Lots of uncertainty around the election, right? There is the potential that with mail-in voting, it could just take longer to get an election result. If we have an unknown election result after election day, that adds an additional complication and that would add to more volatility in the market. And, and frankly, political polarization is probably amplifying the uncertainty here. So, so markets are pricing in volatility come November. And how could this election impact fiscal and monetary policy? Well, First, let's start with um, a given on this chart. And I've said this before, if you've seen this chart before, if you disagree with this first notion, then you know, forget the next two minutes of me going through this chart. What the chart assumes is that the Democrats hold the House. So the four potential different boxes here are who wins the White House and who wins the Senate in what combination. So on the left, the Trump re-election probability we have is 37%. Um, it's the real clear politics average of seven betting markets. And the Biden election probability is on the right at a 61% probability. Now, if Trump wins, you can have a Republican Senate or you can have a Democratic Senate. And if Biden wins, he can do so with the Republican Senate. Again, House is always Democrat in all of these boxes. 
or the blue wave is the bottom right with a Democratic White House and a Democratic Senate. So the question we answer on this chart is what would the impact be on fiscal, so Congress, fiscal and Fed policy? And so if Trump wins and we get a Republican Senate, we think fiscal policy would be expansionary and potentially you get a more accommodative Fed chief. Uh, my view is I think it's hard to be more accommodative than, than, than Jerome Powell, but clearly there's been some barbs between the president and, and, um, and head of the Federal Reserve. So you could see a change in the Fed seat. If Trump wins and Democrats take the Senate, we think you have stagnation on the fiscal side, just nothing really gets accomplished, but you still have um, Jay Powell with easy policy from the Fed supporting the economy. If Biden wins and the Republicans win the Senate, we think you have a scenario where Biden and Democrats wanna spend money and Republicans become concerned about the budget. And so you have rediscovered, rediscovered fiscal austerity. So nothing gets done on the fiscal side, Fed policy stays easy. In, in all of these, by the way, Fed policy is easy. The question is, could it even be more easy? And then if you have the blue wave, you have a fiscal policy, which we think would be expansionary. So Democrats would spend money, but it would likely come along with corporate tax hikes and the Fed policy would stay easy. So you have different impacts. And what that would mean for stocks and bonds would be different in these four scenarios. So uh, again, just high level, and then you can look back later and look at the charts. But if there's a blue wave, we think the impact for stocks is neutral. Higher corporate tax rates, but you're going to have, in our view, a lot of stimulus spending, including um, infrastructure plans. Biden wins with a um, Republican Senate. We think that's negative for stocks, largely because of the gridlock and hard to get an infrastructure plan past, um, also harder for tax hikes. Trump wins with the Democratic Senate. We think that's neutral for stocks. And if Trump wins with the Trump Senate, we think that's positive across the board for stocks. Um, corporate tax rates likely to stay low, um, maybe even lower. Um, and, and the possibility of infrastructure plan could be possible too. I also think it's interesting what the impact would be on the bond market. You know, we, we spend so much time thinking about stocks, but and I'll just pull out one level on the chart. Um, what's the impact on the muni market, right? There's, there's been a lot of talk about blue states, Democratic governor, blue states looking for bailouts. Forget the politics on this. That's more likely to come. So a tailwind for munis if you have um, a blue wave, right? It's more likely that uh, a blue Senate Blue House and Biden in office would send money into those states that have fiscal challenges. It's a lot less likely if you had a red wave that munis would be supported and or bailed out, however you want to think about that. So there's impacts to rates, inflation, credit, munis, and I'll, I'll leave it for the moment. We also have to think about what the impact would be for specific sectors. Again, we can go through this chart ad nauseum, but things like pharma would be hurt from a big wave because of drug pricing. Um, oil and gas would be helped from a red wave, but hurt from a blue wave. Renewables would have the opposite impact. So we, we've got to think about this from a sector perspective, too. I, I think we should acknowledge, though, that trying to build a portfolio or for an investor to get in or out of the market solely based on polls or based on who's the president is, is really not a, a great idea. You know, this chart goes back to 1937. So it's really just a time value of money chart. I don't love it, but I do think it's instructive just to see if you were invested through Democrat 
which is the, the greenish line, or if you inv invested only through Republican presidencies, which is the purple line, you know, your growth of $100,000 since 1937 is worth a lot more. But if you're invested the whole period of time, right, fully invested throughout, it's worth exponentially more money. It's really just a notion of if markets are going to compound at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you pick the number over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever your time horizon is, missing on half of that just crushes your rate of real wealth in your pocket over time. And so trying to just um, navigate markets through a political spectrum we think is dangerous. The other thing I'll put up here quickly, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave for future discussion should people want to have it is, the election is also going to have a meaningful impact on wealth planning, things like capital gains and capital gains rates and potentially long-term capital gains now not getting preferential, preferential treatment under the Biden plan, all could have not only an impact on the market, but a real impact on how we as portfolio managers think about tax management in portfolios, but it also should impact how you think about asset allocation, things you might do for charitable giving, things you might do with your wealth plan along with um, your estate plan. So all of those things, we, we think, you know, if those are things on your mind, you should have those one-on-one -on -one discussions with us because the election and tax policy could have an impact on the, the after-tax wealth, not only for you, but your heirs. Okay, I touched on this a minute earlier, but a question that I, I would say some people who watch the market a little more closely have been asking is, you know, is it all about tech? Is tech the only thing that's going to work going forward? And to answer this, I wanted to give some context around really what the impact of tech has been on markets, not only over the last five years, but, but over the last year. And on the top chart, this is the S&P return over the last five years. Um, Think about the return. Now, this is relative to the S&P 500, so it's contribution. Technology has really been the thing, be all, end all, that has driven S&P market returns over the last five years. It hasn't been healthcare. It hasn't been industrials. It hasn't been financials. It definitely hasn't been energy. It's been all about tech and largely mega cap stock tech. And so another way to think about that is, and you've seen charts like this before from me, market concentration is at its highest in decades as the top five stocks comprise more than 20% of the S&P 500. So this chart goes back to 1990 and you can think about periods like the dot-com bubble in the late 90s going into 2000, but the percent of the S&P 500 of those big five tech companies is now more than 20% of the whole S&P 500. So you've got five companies making up 20% and 495 making up the other 80%. That is a really big concentration. And the question becomes, how do you deal with that as an investor? By the way, just think about that in 2020 alone. This is the S&P return by uh, sector. Technology was up 15% through the first half of the year. Discretionary was up 7%, but that's really all Amazon. Nothing else was positive. Communication services was flat. Financials were down 24%. Energy, you know, that story was down 35. Industrials, utility, REITs, material, staples, everything was down. It was this focus on mega cap tech. And so I think that has broad implications for how you have to think about playing this market and, and how you define your risk, right? Um, for most private wealth investors, 
risk to them is absolute loss of wealth. Like I, I had $1,000 and now I have $990 and $900. But for some, and, and I think it's important that you think about this in your own mind, is the risk your variance versus the S&P 500 or the benchmark? Um, for most institutions, that's how they define risk, right? You know, if you're the Harvard endowment or you're a major hospital system, your investment committee is thinking about risk against the benchmark. Like, how's my stock doing versus the benchmark? And I'm not suggesting that shouldn't matter for private wealth investors. It absolutely should. But when you have a market that has such concentration in really five stocks, you've got to think about how your stocks are performing or how your portfolio is performing broadly in absolute and in the relative terms and say to yourself, you know, look, if I want to run with this market, I might have to have this big concentration to tech. Do, do I want to have that bet on the portfolio? You might say I do or I don't, but, but that's where you're going to drive absolute, or excuse me, relative performance from here is really whether or not you're going to buy into this tech trade or not. And if most private wealth investors say, you know what, I don't want to make that bet, then, then the better strategy is really to have a, a really well diversified equity portfolio with exposure to tech, but not a big bet pro or con tech. And, and that could create some tracking error versus your benchmark. But the truth is in getting less, in, in getting a different return than the benchmark, you're not going to have that, what I would say, um, implied bet on five big tech companies that are making up so much of the S&P 500. So here's the thing, right? Those tech companies are what we would traditionally call growth stocks. Companies like financials today, utilities, um, could be even things like retail on this chart, you see financials, industrials, real estate, a lot of the true value plays, they are selling really cheap today where those growth stocks are, are really expensive. That value opportunity today is compelling, right? The question is though, kind of how much do you want to risk on trying to make some big call pro value or some, or some call that says, look, I don't believe value is ever gonna come back. I think it's all about tech from here forward. We're in a new world. And that becomes a big bet on it in itself. So we're trying to tr build portfolios that have exposure to value, have exposure to growth, have it in reasonable ways, but don't have clients kind of out on a limb about whether one of these, um, one of these phenomenons continues for an indefinite period of time. So how do you be opportunistic in a market that has come back from down 30, 40%? and has all the question marks I talked to you about on the prior scorecard. Now, this is for people who really in their mind say, I can live with risk. I'm willing to be opportunistic, not only on a pure asset allocation level, like I'm willing to buy stocks, but it's also the types of stocks I'm willing to buy. Look, in being opportunistic, the best way to be opportunistic is to buy someone else's anxiety, buy their distress at a discount. Obviously a great time to do that was in the March, April period of this year when equities were off 40%. But it is hard to do that in the face of headlines that say the US declares a national emergency, schools are closing, New York cases are peaking. You know, it is hard to buy someone else's anxiety at that period of time. But that is clearly one of the easiest ways to be opportunistic. That either means putting dry powder, cash to work, or if you're a balanced investor stocks and bonds, cycling out of bonds into stocks in periods of time where there is a true discount. Today, where are other places you can do that? Well, we've talked about the high yield bond market, so I'll leave that for a second.
but it's also watching the rotation into foreign markets and into small cap. Both of those places have started to show signs of a rebound, but in our view, both are, are really discounted versus what their fair value could be. You gotta be patient to do that. You gotta be willing to take on risk, but it's a way you can be opportunistic beyond just buying other people's anxiety. It, this is, would be more in the notion of buying um, out of favor stock. The other way you can be opportunistic is if you're willing to think about long-term trends in how the world is changing that are not all related to COVID. And one of the ways we do that is through a portfolio of sustainable global thematic ideas, which invests in climate, health, and empowerment. And you can see the, the subsets there. All of these are views that the portfolio manager, Dan Rorty, believes are going to be areas of long-term growth, regardless of the geopolitical or the economic environment. And think about it, right? It's everything from the healthcare space dealing with the probability of people dying from cardiovascular disease, cancer, chronic respiratory disease, and how that gets addressed through customized medicine. It's dealing with climate change and rising global temperatures and how that impacts quality of life and, and what um, technologies are used to address that. It's it's access to financial systems. It's um, in the healthcare space, how do you bring healthcare to parts of the world that, that don't otherwise have it? In the blue, this notion of traditional finances and changing is the notion of FinTech. And I wanted to play for you a video with our senior financial research an analyst, uh, William Johnson, talking to Dan Rorty, who runs this portfolio about changes in the FinTech space and how that's being impacted by COVID. And this may take a second, so I apologize. And businesses large and small around the world. With me today to talk about FinTech is William Johnston, our research analyst specializing in financials. So William, can you start by telling us what FinTech is? Payment technology was really born out of the consumer installment credit product in the US in the 1950s. But payments have evolved now into quite a complex digital web. I mean, this has seen um, a big growth in e-commerce um, between a broadening group of people at all levels from uh, business to consumer, business to business, government to consumer, and person to person. And technology companies are now looking to exploit each part of the value chain and helping you know, customers and banks and businesses speak to each other across the spectrum. 80% of all transactions globally are still conducted with good old fashioned cash. So what do we think is gonna drive this shift away from physical cash and towards digital payments? We're seeing a significant growth in cross-border flows and the vast central bank printing in the face of an economic slowdown is challenging national currencies with the birth of borderless software cash such as Bitcoin. So the revolution in digitalization is unfolding with rapid growth and transaction value is growing at around 24% per annum um, over the last three years. Where's the strongest growth taking place right now? Asia represents the biggest opportunity, almost half of all payment revenue. And China is leading the way through its state-endorsed payment networks, 
We're seeing social media networks even looking to create their own cryptocurrencies to monetize their vast customer bases. But also, um, in the face of COVID-19, um, payment trends are rapidly evolving as individuals who have never ordered groceries, paid bills online, um, are being introduced to the world of digital payments. You mentioned COVID. How do you think COVID is going to impact the fintech space? We believe that COVID-19 will accelerate a lot of the pre-existing trends and shift towards digital payments globally. China is even looking to launch its own digital currency. And if this innovation comes to the fore, um, you could see a significant reduction in cash usage. How are the fintech companies themselves responding to COVID? Fintech companies are fast-tracking new web-based platforms to help sellers and to also leverage the tap and pay technologies. Fintech companies across the world are acting as conduits to assist individuals uh, with CARES Act type payments, but are now handling you know, quite a lot of consumer deposits received from governments and so challenging the traditional forms of finance. All right, so hopefully that gave you an insight into how Dan's team is thinking about fintech. Um, just to, to broaden it out, these sustainable themes offer, in our view, differentiated opportunities for secular growth. And, and it changes the conversation from, am I going to own Amazon today or not, to if I can take a long-term view, where do I think I can generate long-term big thematic return over a five-year period? That may be in wind, digital payments, DNA sequencing, internet traffic, digital health data, electric vehicles. These are all areas with significantly higher compound annual growth rates than the US GDP is forecast to be. And if you're gonna be in this space, I think you should have a, for those of you who spend time in, in financial markets, a, a private equity-like mentality. These are not private equity investments, it's a traditional equity portfolio. But if you're trying to get a target return of 12 to 15% rate of return, you've gotta take some risk to get there and you gotta live with some volatility around the business but if you can say, you know what, I'm thinking about this as a long-term play. I recognize the value of these companies could change quarter to quarter, could change during COVID, but I'm thinking about what these companies are gonna be worth in 2026 and 2028 and 2030. We think it's an interesting place for exposure where you can generate return, be opportunistic, and really not have to be so focused on what's the right play during coronavirus. Last topic is how can I protect my retirement nest egg? And, and I'm gonna apologize in advance. I'm showing you the exact same chart. And, and this is the portion where I speak out of both sides of my mouth, because I just told you that it's really interesting to be opportunistic down here on the chart. What I'm gonna tell you is if, if your goal is really about capital preservation, it's not about you being a buyer of distress down here for outsized return. It's about you not becoming a seller of distress down here. And so for investors who have just lived through this up and down, I think it's really important if your financial plan allows and you don't wanna live through this again, and I think we could all acknowledge, it's, it's not impossible, it's on the table. I'm not sure it'll be nearly as violent as, as it was in March, but there's volatility likely to be ahead. It's much better you reduce your equity exposure when the market was here. And oh, by the way, it's back there now here, right? Accounts are essentially flat. Some are up a little for the year, some are down a little, depends on everyone's specifics, but no one has gone through that trough anymore. 
And so if you're an investor who says, hey, I don't know that I have the emotional wherewithal to go through that again, or not the financial wherewithal, it's really important, in my view, to do everything you can to make sure you're not the distressed seller who sells your anxiety to the opportunistic buyer I just talked about before, right? In my perfect world, I'm making this up. Half my clients are worried about markets and, and do not become distressed sellers. And the other half of my clients buy from different distressed sellers who aren't my clients, right? I don't want half my clients selling their portfolio to another half of my clients. That, that, that doesn't get, do anyone any good, right? And, and so I think it's important that, and we've talked about this, with markets recovering where they are in a pandemic with the potential for volatility, whether it be around the election or anything else, if you sit there and say, and we can test this for you, I don't know that I need whatever my exposure to equity is today, whether you're a 20% equity exposure client or a 60 or a hundred, I think it's a reasonable time to say, if I can take some risk off the table, better I do it now. And if I give up some upsides, so be it. My biggest concern is protecting my nest egg and not becoming a distressed seller at the wrong time. It's also important to note that if you're going to sell or you're sitting on cash, you know, one of the places we think that you can generate some underline some modest level of return, especially for the level of risk is in the municipal bond market. And, and this chart tells you, we're not sitting here telling you the municipal bond market is perfect. Credit fundamentals are weak, right? Um, economic growth, really weak. Municipal credit value though, it's pretty attractive. Cheap is good in our world. And so we think you really have to be tactical and active in the bond world because in, in, in this market, bond opportunities evolve quite quickly. So here's 12 month hypothetical returns on different bonds, whether it's a triple A bond, a triple B bond, or if um, there's reversion in, let's just call it risk in the triple B space. So triple B is a lower rated bond than double A. I'm using those two because it's a pretty big contrast. And you get in the bond market yield in triple A bonds, it's about 1.3% today. You also get this thing called roll. We can get into that for separate discussions if people want, plus price appreciation. If you buy triple B bonds today, not only is the yield significantly better than triple A bonds, right? You're talking about north of 2%. But if spreads come in a bit, you can make 4.6 to 6% on triple B bonds today. And, and it's important then that you take those profits and redeploy that money elsewhere. So being active in the bond space is incredibly important today. Um, we do our own credit research. We've been thoughtful about, you know, airports having 599 days cash on hand, toll roads having on average 954 days cash on hand. So we're thoughtful about what we're buying so much so that, you know, we think about what the after-tax return is of munis versus treasuries. And if you look currently right now, we are starting to rotate some of our highest quality munis into treasuries because of some technicals in the market and supply demand at the end of summer. And it's very likely that in just a few weeks, we'll rotate those treasuries back into munis. So these little positioning changes within a muni portfolio give you the ability to eke out another half or 1% of return versus a bond index, which is so much money in the bond world. By the way, it's a lot more than you would earn in cash. I would just note, our credit research is really thinking about whether it's the healthcare sector, the airport sector, or the toll road sector, what's going on in those spaces? What's the compensation I'm getting for that risk? Not just what you know, Moody's says or S&P says, but what our real analysts on the ground say, and can we rotate in and out of some of these sectors to pick up return?
But if your baseline is cash and you don't have an immediate need for the cash because you're, you're, you're buying a home or you're going through a transaction, I would tell you that intermediate bonds are a really good bet versus cash. There has never been a three-year period of time. And for nearly all of my clients, you have a three-year time horizon, except again, for those who need the money for something else. Over a three-year period of time, 100% of the time, intermediate bonds have outperformed cash. You know cash today earns zero. Um, over this period of time, since 2002, cash earned 1%. Bonds earned 3.6 tax-free. That's a really big spread. And, and oh, by the way, in most environments, when stocks sell off, you get a rally in bonds, not all the time, but most of the time. And I know some people are worried about low yields and I'm just gonna to touch on this chart quickly because I've shown it before. This is a chart of Japanese government bonds. And for those of you who follow financial markets, we know that Japan has had basically zero interest rates forever. And even though Japanese bond yields since 08 have been under 1%, the return on those bonds has consistently been much better than the yield. In 2008, when the yield was 1%, those bonds made over 3.5%. That is a constant, um, constant on this chart. The diamond is the yield. The bar is what the return was. Think about 2014, the yield was half a percent and bonds made four and a half percent in Japan. So if you get anchored to the yield, we think you're gonna miss out on opportunity there. And there are lots of different ways we can skin this cat, right? With a short intermediate or limited duration portfolio, we can pick different levels of credit quality if you want it in a fund or individually managed. So depending on what you're trying to accomplish, if you wanna uh, a higher yield bond portfolio or a triple A bond portfolio, or you want a two-year bond portfolio or a four or a five, we, we can really customize this to what it is you're trying to accomplish. L last quick thing here, this just came out this morning. I wanted to show it to you. This is our 12-month municipal return scenario analysis. Now this is all else being equal about credit markets. It's, it's just, you know, if you, if you think about the 10-year treasury, where's the 10-year treasury today and what would it be for bond returns? So this is, again, an intermediate municipal bond portfolio. If the 10-year treasury stays at about 0.6, we think uh, muni bond portfolio returns just over 2%. That's really attractive versus cash. If you think rates are going up and rates go up to 1.15, which is a big move from here, not impossible, we think muni still return 0.6 tax-free. So yeah, pr pretty reasonable as compared to sitting in cash or in treasuries. If bond yields or 10-year treasuries come down from here to 0.35, Again, not impossible. It's a scary low yield to be a 0.35, but if that were to happen, munis will return 3%. So we think all of these are, are really attractive when you are comparing it to cash. So I hope I've hit a lot of the big questions as we exit the summer and, and pivot into the fall. Um, if markets dictate we need to do another one of these in the next few weeks, we will. Otherwise, I think we'll, we'll try and target late September um, for the time being, we are still remote, but Amanda, myself, and the team are available email, phone, whatever it is, Zoom you need to, to be in touch with us. And if there are any topics that I hit on here um, that led to further discussion, really feel free to reach out to, to me or Amanda. We'll walk you through that and, and have a deeper dive. If there's some analytics you need about your portfolio, don't hesitate to ask. Um, and, and really most important as we get out of the summer and get into the fall, stay safe. For those of you with, with kids, good luck. <laughs> Try and figure out the school situation. I have no good advice on that one. Um, but if you need anything, we are here for you. So thank you for the time today. And I look forward to talking to you all soon. Take care.